This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, A Biblical Response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, copyright 1981. Chapter 13, Statism. I believe that one should legislate on issues that affect not just the person involved, but whole classes of people. So it would be appropriate to have open housing legislation. Ronald Sider, The Wittenberg Door, October 1979. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? Matthew 20, verse 15. To virtually every problem raised in his writings, Ronald Sider's answer is state intervention. Even when he appeals to the private sector, his motive is to have the uncoerced actions of individuals serve as models for coercive actions of government. As we have seen, he regards the biblical model of charity to be morally inferior to the biblically forbidden methods of statist expropriation and redistribution. Are prices unjust? Have the state lower them or raise them, judging solely on the basis of economic class, siding with the poor, providing for their needs, creating more and more dependence upon the government. Do we need jobs? Let the state provide them. Are profits too high? Let the state slice them down to size. Do we eat too much meat? Let us have a national food policy. What about health care? That is the business of the state. Is there inequality in the world? Let us ask our father in Washington to make us all equal in economics. Of course, when other inequalities arise, not differences, mind you, but inequalities, the state will have to level them too, until, in the not very distant future, after the Third World War, justice had made great strides. Legal justice, economic justice, social justice, and many other forms of justice, of which we do not even know the names, have been attained. But there still remain spheres of human relationship and activity in which justice did not reign. So begins L.P. Hartley's futurist novel, Facial Justice, in which facial beauty must be equalized facial beauty to ensure that justice is complete we may smile but the possibility of it seems daily less remote where does the justice of statism stop if we have abandoned the biblical limitations on the power of the state there is no logical boundary to its activity of one thing we may be sure if hartley's nightmare ever comes true it will no doubt have been brought about to a great extent through the tireless and diligent efforts of a dedicated group of biblical Christians, the evangelicals for facial action. The only functions allowed to the state by the Bible are defense of its people and punishment of criminals. To go a step beyond this is forbidden. Biblical law works to prevent power being concentrated 
in any one institution by creating and sanctioning many institutions, family, church, community, voluntary associations, and the state, all of which have legitimate but limited powers, all acting as buffers against the other powers in a system of counterbalanced authorities. Gary North writes, No one institution should be regarded as sovereign outside of its own legitimate but strictly limited sphere. Society in this perspective is a matrix of competing sovereignties, each with certain claims on men, but none of that to- none with total claims in all areas. Statism is thus the infringement of God's limits on the state. It is sin, defined by the Westminster Shorter Catechism as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. For the state to fail to conform to God's law, that is, by refusing to execute those who should be executed, is statism, because it is the state playing God by attempting to relax God's standards. For the state to transgress God's law, for example, by interfering with the price of mechanism of the market, is statism because the state is claiming omniscience and omnipotence over the creation. God has given the state certain legitimate and necessary functions, but ruling the world is not one of them. The state's only duty with respect to the market is to guard against and punish what the Bible defines as public crime, which, as we have seen, is not absolutely identical with sin. I may have sin in my heart in refusing to do business with red-haired people, but it is not a crime legitimately punishable by the state. God will deal with me. Again, if my prices are too high, the search for bargains will induce people to patronize the business of a competitor whose prices more closely are in line with the reality of the demand. God's imposed scarcity, Genesis 3:17-19, induces men to become less wasteful. The free market is free only with respect to state intervention. It is never free from the providence of God. And this is as good a point as any to consider Cider's objections to the free market and its alleged in inventors, the 18th century economist. During the 18th century, Cider says, Western society decided that the scientific method should shape our relationship to reality. Since only quantitative criteria of truth and value are acceptable, more intangible values such as community, trust, and friendship became less important. Unlike friendship and justice, GNP can be measured. The result is competitive growth economy where winning and economic success, and they are usually the same, are all important. From the perspective of biblical revelation, property owners are not free to seek their own profit without regard to the needs of their neighbor. Such an outlook derives from the secular laissez-faire economics of the deist Adam Smith, not from scripture. Smith published a book in 1776 which has profoundly shaped Western society in the last two centuries. 
Since the Keynesian Revolution, of course, Smith's ideas have shaped Western societies less than previously, but his fundamental outlook, albeit in somewhat revised form, still provides the basis, the basic ideological framework for many North Americans. Smith argues that an, invis an invisible hand would guarantee the good of all if each person would pursue his or her own economic self-interest in the context of a competitive society. Supply and demand for goods and services must be the sole determinant of prices and wages. If the law of supply and demand reigns, and if all seek their own advantage within a competitive non-monopolistic non economy, the good of society will be served. Owners of land and capital, therefore, have not only the right, but also the obligation to seek as much profit as possible. Such an outlook may be extremely attractive to successful North Americans, Indeed, laissez-faire economics has been espoused by some as the Christian economics. In reality, however, it is a product of the Enlightenment. It reflects a modern, secularized outlook rather than a biblical perspective. End of quote. Thus, in one fell swoop, St. Ronald lops the head off the mighty capitalist dragon. Minus the logical fallacies and historical errors, that's really quite an argument. I don't like capitalism. That aspect of his thesis is, in fact, unanswerable. Rather than tackle it, therefore, I will concede his victory and deal with the more vulnerable parts of his statement. Was Adam Smith a deist? That may depend on the definition of deism, a difficult task to begin with. If by deism is simply meant the absentee landlord view of the world, that God has nothing to do with it, then Smith was no deist, as can be abundantly proven by reference to his works. He certainly believed in heaven and hell and in God's providential and loving oversight of the world. As examples of the latter, consider these statements. Every part of nature, when attentively surveyed, equally demonstrates the providential care of its author, and we may admire the wisdom and goodness of God even in the weakness and folly of men. Thus, when they are oppressed by evil men, Smith says, the only effectual consolation of humbled and afflicted man lies in an appeal to a still higher tribunal to that of the all-seeing judge of the world, whose eye can never be deceived and whose judgments can never be perverted. Because of this, there is a final remedy for injustice. The justice of God requires that he should hereafter average the injuries of the widow and the fatherless, who are here so often insulted with impunity. I'm not defending Smith as an evangelical Christian. He certainly tended toward empiricism and natural theology. But deism is a rather ambiguous term and muddies the water with ad hominem arguments. If Smith was a deist, that alone does not invalidate his whole economic thought. Why, if I were to play dirty like that, I would mention that Sider's beloved Lord Keynes 
was an atheistic homosexual with a marked taste for young Tunisian boys, which proves that his economics is fallacious. As for the charge of the laissez-faire economists care little for intangible values, incidentally all values are intangible, such as community trust and friendship, the answer is to read them. Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations assumes the existence of the moral order provided by Christian culture. For him, the growth of wealth was not in the least incompatible with concern for the welfare of others. But he also knew that such an atmosphere required the rule of law. Commerce and manufacturers can seldom flourish long in any state which does not enjoy a regular administration of justice in which people do not feel themselves secure in the possession of their property. Whatever may be said against him, he did not, in contrast to both Keynes and Sider, advocate theft as a matter of public policy. He saw community trust and friendship in terms of lawful behavior. Sider's confused argument against the view that supply and demand must be the sole determinant of prices and wages seems to imply that the biblical perspective requires some other determinant. What would that be? He offers no scripture for this, understandably, since there is none, but simply asserts it. His position, of course, is that the state must be the sole determinant of prices and wages, but that view cannot be supported by the Bible. Sider is simply using the arguments of a socialist demagogue attempting to use the church as a means to increase the oppressive power of the state. When it suits him to use a superficially biblical argument, he does, but he is by no means tied to Scripture. The law of supply and demand has no ought about it. It cannot be repealed or contradicted by any government action whatsoever. The law of supply and demand always operates. It is inescapable since God's imposed curse of scarcity is inescapable. If the government raises the price of an item, it creates a surplus of that item. Why? Because demand falls. Fewer people are willing to pay the higher price. If the government lowers a price, it creates a shortage, because consumer demand rises in excess of the supply. The law of supply and demand has not been thereby avoided. It is just that the market price is now illegal. The law of supply and demand is still true. The only difference is that now there is injustice and the resultant surplus or shortage, which is God's curse on those who defy him. Is laissez-faire economics Christian? That all depends on the meaning of the term. If laissez-faire means anarchy, the answer is no. The Bible does not want the government to stand idly by while Murder Incorporated negotiates a market price for its service. The market is to be free from government regulation, but criminal activity in the market must be abolished. Laissez-faire, in the Christian sense, means that the state enforces God's laws and leaves men free to make choices. The duty of the state is not to save men from the consequences of their own irresponsible decisions. The duty of the state is to guard men from criminal activity. 
This is not to say that the free market is paradise or that the concern in Christian economics is only freedom from price controls. What we desire is a Christian commonwealth wherein the choices of men will flow from devotion to the glory of God. But we are saying that such a culture will not be produced by attempting to legislate men's scales of value. The state must punish lawbreakers and protect the law-abiding. The culture itself can be transformed only by the regenerating and sanctifying grace of God. The state is not the agency of regeneration. And in spite of Sider's contempt for the invisible hand, let us remember that he would replace it with the very visible armored fist of a coercive state. He would substitute bureaucratic compulsion for voluntary exchange. The whole point of the invisible hand thesis is that the only way of determining equitable prices is to allow free men to make free choices. Contrary to popular myth, producers do not set prices. Consumers do. Every time you buy or do not buy an item, you are casting a vote on its price. You aren't the only one voting, certainly, but you are voting nonetheless. The producer wants as much money as possible for his product, and the buyer wants as much product as possible for his money. The price will thus tend toward a point at which the supply will equal the demand. There will be neither shortages nor surpluses. If a producer makes a mistake of producing a good for which there is insufficient demand at a price which would reward the producer for producing it, he will see his mistake in the loss column and will either redirect his investment entirely or find a way to produce the item at a lower cost, enabling him to sell at a price which consumers are willing to pay. This operation of the free market means that Mistakes in investment tend to be quickly corrected. Consumer demand is satisfied, and producers are rewarded only when they fulfill the wants of, co- of consumers. The market price determines profit and loss, and this means that even though both consumer and producer are pursuing th- his own interest, each is helping the other. The producer supplies that supplies what the consumer wants at a price the consumer is willing to pay. And the consumer tells the producer he is on the right track by rewarding him with his payment for the product. The wants of society are supplied at a price which gives producers the incentive to supply them. If the price is too low, there will be a great demand but not sufficient incentive to produce. If the price is too high, demand will fall and the producer will suffer losses. The market system is a giant auction where profit, loss, and the freedom of buyers and sellers to mutually bid the price up or down are the only ways to get a clearing price, an equality of supply and demand. Any tampering with the machinery by a non-market factor, whether it be a syndicate's protection racket, or governmental price control, will inevitably disrupt the system. The reason for this is that God curses disobedience. Statism cannot succeed, for God's word and his word are against it. We will now examine some of Sider's statist proposals and see how God's curse is inflicted upon them.
price controls. Let's say the government decides that the price of milk is too high. Instead of $2 per gallon, it should be only $1 per gallon. At this price, many people will be willing to pay more to buy more milk, and they will be very grateful if the government controls the price at that level. But many of the milk producers will be unable to sell at that price because their cost of production are too high. They will drop out of the market and the supply of milk will fall drastically. The government, in its misguided charity, had intended that more people would be able to buy milk. But the result of the price control is that fewer people are actually able to buy it. So the government steps in again and decrees that the cost of production, machine parts, fuel, feed for the cows, milk cartons, and so on, must be lowered. But the producers who had dropped out will be able to supply now the producers who had dropped out will be able to supply milk for the one dollar price. Except that those who had been producing the factors of milk production are now beginning to drop out of their markets. Milk producers are now more than ever unable to produce the required milk because although the factors of production now cost less, they are unavailable. The milk price is still officially low enough for many people to buy it, but there is less milk to buy. And no matter what the government does for further redu to further reduce cost, the result will still be the same, a shortage of the control product. Price controls are biblically unlawful, and thus they cannot work. Consider rent controls. The state planners decide that housing is too expensive, so they set a limit on the amount of rent a landlord may charge. Because profits are now less available in housing, entrepreneurs will reduce their investments in building houses and apartments and some landlords will find other uses for their properties. In a free market, investment would flow in the direction of housing to meet the demand. At first, with a high demand and low supply, prices would be high. This would attract more investors who would compete for the money of consumers, and as, a competition, as, and as competition increased, prices would fall. A free market, including the absence of compulsory zoning laws, will supply the demands of consumers. But statism cannot bring supply and demand together. Moreover, price controls will reduce not only the supply of goods, but the quality of goods as well. Landlords will try to reduce their costs by cutting down the quality of their housing since there is no market incentive for them to retain high standards. They will not seek to keep up the plumbing facilities and so forth because with the shortage of housing due to the control price they do not have to, they do not have to compete for renters they will always be able to find people so desperate for housing that anything will do so improvements are not made and breakdowns are not repaired if costs are prohibitive or losses are high many landlords will simply disappear abandoning their properties altogether this is happening daily in new york city and many other cities the planners do not intend any of this, but it, is ha it has happened again and again. It will always happen. God curses those who disobey him. Their plans cannot succeed, not in the long run. Sider writes constantly of just and fair prices. What is a fair price? 
where are we to go for an authority which can infallibly determine a fair price? Personally, I think a just price for my book would be around 50 bucks. But you don't think so, and the publisher figured you wouldn't. So I, I scream about this obvious injustice. The notion of a just price is based on the fallacy of intrinsic value. That there is a specific quantifiable objective and eternal market value in a good or service. Cider holds to this view and complains that one pays much more for a haircut in New York than in an Indian village, but it probably is worth no more. This utterly meaningless statement is supposed to produce guilt in New Yorkers, but that is the extent of its possible use. For the customer in New York, the haircut is worth more to him than he pays for it. If it were not, he would take the risk of having his wife do it instead. If cider means that barbers in India are as technically proficient as American barbers are, he may be right, but that has little to do with the variations in price between the two countries. As we noted in Chapter 1, exchange takes place because each party values the other's good or service more highly than he values his own. This means that value is not intrinsic. Value is imputed. Each of us forms consumer preferences on a scale in his own mind. With changing conditions, these preferences also change. Men's preferences cannot be measured in money or anything else. They can only be compared. Whenever you make an exchange, you do it in terms of your scale of values, deciding if a certain good is worth what you must give up for it. Meanwhile, the other person is doing the same thing. And if the exchange is completed, that means that each of you valued the other's good higher than you did your own. If the goods were truly valued equally, there would be no exchange at all. Neither one of you would be anxious to buy or sell. You exchange because you would rather have the other good than that which you trade for it. This means that there can never be a just price, but prices can be just. Prices are just when there is no fraud or coercion in the market, when God's laws are obeyed. It follows that a price set by the government must always be unjust. Instead of allowing free men to buy and sell in terms of their own scales of value, the state applies coercion, necessarily backed by potential violence, in order to force people to comply with its arbitrary justice. Always this is done in favor of one class or pressure group against another in direct violation of God's command. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Leviticus 19.15 <clears throat> How does Cider get around that verse, seeing that it condemns his class warfare ambitions? He answers, The God of the Bible is on the side of the poor just because he is not biased. That is slick. Must be a gift. Minimum wage laws. In one of his most amusing statements, Sider defends minimum wage laws against those who stand for the biblical mandate of personal charity. 
Personal charity is too arbitrary and haphazard. This is cider. It depends on the whim and feelings of the well-off. Many needy people fail to meet those who can help. Proper institutional change, that is a minimum wage, on the other hand, automatically benefits everyone. Hmm. Again, to be repetitious, such statist intervention is completely unbiblical. God's law commands personal charity. If we do not obey God's word, we regard, with regard to this command, God promises to destroy us. Biblical law is the standard of righteousness. But now a new prophet has arised, a new word. He tells us that God's law can't get the job done. God's law is not only morally inferior to statism, but it is also too arbitrary and haphazard in practice. <coughs> More than this, the specific, specific example of a proper means of charity is the minimum wage law, which automatically benefits everyone. Cider hmm. is guilty of either ignorance or duplicity, but in any case, he is not telling us anything about justice or compassion. The minimum wage law is unjust and serves as a powerful tool of statist oppression. When the state does not intervene in, into the market, all those who wish to work will find jobs. Labor is always scarce. At some price, producers will hire labor. Unemployment is a limited and temporary phenomenon. But when the state mandates a minimum wage, that suddenly changes. Each employer must now pay his least productive workers this wage, plus the legal fringe benefits, which amount to 25 to 35%. At the present minimum, this is 1985, of $3.35, uh, we've come a long way, baby, haven't we? This means that the marginal worker cost his employer well over $4 per hour. Thus, no one whose productivity is lower will be employed. The minimum wage law creates institutional unemployment where people who are willing and able to work are legally prohibited from selling their labor at its market value. <coughs> Hans Sinholtz points out that at least 3 million idle Americans owe their unemployment to this labor law. Teenagers and uneducated, unskilled minority workers are its primary victims. I'm sure it's more than that now. It is striking that this law is spoken of as just by a man who claims to be on the side of the poor. It automatically benefits everyone. Everyone, that is, except employers who must cut production because of the rising cost, consumers who are hurt by the lower productivity and higher prices, and especially the poor who are legally unemployable. But there is hope. If those who are unemployed by this law will cry out to God, he will hear them and avenge them. He will come and destroy their oppressors who support such an unjust, unbiblical law. A national food policy. Americans eat too much, and we all we eat all the things Ronald Sider doesn't like, such as sugar and grain-fed meat. Therefore, he says, all industrialized nations 
especially the United States and Canada, should immediately devise a national food policy in which the government would tell us what's best for us to eat. Hmm. Aside from the fact that nutrition experts disagree widely on what's best to eat, for example, the cholesterol debate, the fat debate, whatever you want to debate, any real implementation of such a program necessitates tyrannical state controls over food production and distribution. Who do you think might benefit from that? Such controls are not allowed by the laws of the Bible. Any yes, but arguments are invalid and demonstrate an unwillingness to submit to biblical law. It is true that some people do not eat good food. That's no argument for disobeying God's law by giving the state the power to change their eating habits. Some people do not brush their teeth. On Sider's principles, we should enact laws, provide free toothpaste and brushes to every citizen, and send bureaucrats to each home every morning and evening, armed with dental floss, unwaxed, of course, to enforce oral hygiene on the public. Dental justice for all. Smile. Sider does not appeal to Scripture for this plan. Instead, he says, Norway has proven that a national food policy can make a difference. Hmm. No argument on that point. Norway, one of the most heavily socialistic nations in the world, is in deep financial trouble. Norway suffers the highest production cost in the whole world at this point. Its social welfare system eats up about 55% of its gross national product. Every industrial worker receives high government subsidies. Shipbuilders are subsidized to the tune of $10,000 per year. And it multiplies its problems by strictly inhibiting all private investments. Hmm. Give Ronald Sider the controls and you too can have a worker's paradise. P.T. Bauer pinpoints the problem. The state cannot create new additional productive resources. The politicians and civil servants who direct its policy dispose only of resources diverted from the rest of the economy. It is certainly not clear why overriding the decisions of private persons should increase the flow of income, since the resources used by the planners must, must have been diverted from other productive public or private uses. Thus, the controls imposed under comprehensive planning generally have nothing to do with raising popular living standards. Instead, they usually depress them. Mises summed it up. There is no other alternative to totalitarian slavery than liberty. There is no other planning for freedom or general welfare than to let the market system work. There is no other means to full employment, rising real wage rates, and a high standard of living for the common man, than private initiative and free enterprise. If this is true, and it has been demonstrated again and again, that socialism does not work, why do intelligent men such as Sider persist in believing it does? The answer is found in Romans 1, to 23 For even though they know God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. 
professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Socialism is a religious faith. Its foolishness, its inability to cope with the real world, stems from the fact that its adherents have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Romans one twenty five. Socialism is the religion of man. It is the product of humanism. It is nothing but state worship, seeing the state as Lord and Savior. Rejecting God's word, it thus rejects reason as well. Facts are seen in terms of presuppositions, and the socialist has a vision of reality completely determined by his adoration of the omnipotent state. He is hypnotized by power. Adam Smith, that great champion of liberty, had a phrase to describe the statist, the man of system. His characteristic is particularly fitting. We are pawns in the bureaucrat's chess game. The man of system is apt to be very wise in his own conceit and is often so enamored with the supposed beauty of his own ideal plan of government that he cannot suffer the smallest deviation from any part of it. He seems to imagine that he can arrange the different members of a great society with as much ease as the hand arranges the different pieces upon a chessboard. He does not consider that the pieces upon the chessboard have no other principle of motion besides that which the hand impresses upon them, but that in the great chessboard of human society, every single piece has a principle of motion of its own, altogether different from that which the legislature might choose to impress upon it. This is the core of all socialist policies. Socialism does not treat men as men created in the image of God. Socialism is a power theory. We must not look merely at Ronald Sider's alleged ideals, that the poor should have enough to eat, that we all should be healthy, that we should not covetously spend our money on every trifle we see advertised and so on. But we must look closely at how he intends to accomplish these things. He wants to see the state empowered to enforce his goals in every area of life. Let us never forget that this means the use of weapons to ensure compliance on the part of the people. I'm not implying, of course, that there will be a shootout every time the state moves in on an offender. The threat, however, always exists. But the only ultimate reason for asking the state to enforce something is that the state possesses the legal right of coercion. And practically speaking, as Chairman Mayo said, political power grows out of a gun barrel. Now I am implying, nor am I implying that the state's use of violence is always wrong, but that power of coercion must be used only where God has given the state the authority to do so. Any other use of it is is abuse. It is the exaltation of the state into the place of God. It is conceivable that Sider has not thought of the implications of his demands. He may be only very ignorant and not as evil as I have suggested, He has indeed called for a non-violent revolution. 
and seems to deplore the use of physical force. We can hope that he is sincere, but, but that does not change the fact that his policies require all sorts of violent intrusions upon liberty. We have already noted that comprehensive status planning means nothing other than the concentration of power. And this concentration of power is forbidden by the law of God. It is therefore doomed to failure. It cannot increase resources, capital, or productivity. It cannot ultimately do anything for the poor. The only thing statism will ever produce is the judgment of a jealous God upon its presumption. Cider's appeal for state controls will result only in tyranny and destruction. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.